of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is hour one of episode 567. Jason Lingren is with me, and Bibu Dev Mizra joins us again. As you may remember, he was on not too long ago to talk about his book, Yuga Shift, which I have, I'm, I don't know, not quite three quarters of the way through the book now, which is why we've asked him back. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a fine good morning. Uh, let's do the most with our time here. Welcome, Bibu. Welcome back, my friend. Thanks, Crow, for having me back. Uh, it's good to have you back. And I have uh, been going at the book as I can. I usually have four or five books going. And I would say the reason that I appreciate your book the most is you did all the hard research to pull together all the different points of view of when the actual age change might be. And to me, that makes this book handy beyond imagination. Anyone who wants to know all the different cultural points of view about cycles. I mean, you pretty much pulled it all into this one book. Yes, bro. I mean, that was one of the intentions of writing the book, which is to show that it's actually a scientific doctrine and it's backed up by whatever we know about the past, whether it's from history or it's archaeology or it's anthropology, as well as a lot of uh, data about ancient calendars. So when you pull it all together, you see that the information that we have with us right now does not support the linear view, which is the mainstream view. Rather, it supports the cyclical view, which is the yuga cycle view of things. Well, I, I would go so far to say, Bibu, once you read a book like the one you've written, there is no example of linear points of view other than the one that we follow in the mainstream Western world now, which, I mean, I guess we could maybe tie that to the Gregorian calendar. What do you think? Yeah, that's right. I mean, when you think of the linear view, it actually came up in the last 200 or 300 years. And prior to that, every culture believed in the cyclical view. And it was just overturned uh, in a span of a few decades at the most. So, yeah, I mean, we need to look at the data without getting uh, distracted by the model that has been presented in front of us. So when we do that, we see that uh, the cycles are a natural part of the phenomena on planet Earth. And uh, every civilization believed in these cycles. And we have the data to uh, prove that now. Well, what's interesting, too, is when you start digging into, let's say, the American Indian ideas or any other culture, I started to notice things like the colors on an American Indian medicine wheel. I've seen those matched to colors being paired off with the Kali Yuga cycles. It's pretty clear that all of the older cultures that were close to nature viewed time in a very similar way. What's crazy is I guess because the Catholic Church kind of took over the way we think about things, particularly time, uh, there is the one thing that seems to be hidden and maybe not mass agreed upon is when does the change actually happen? And that's where you come in with this book. Yeah, that's right. The dates of the entire yoga cycle have were forgotten, actually, over, over the last 2,000 years or so. And uh, that was one of the main problems because you didn't exactly know when the Kali Yuga started or when it's going to end. And because of all that confusion, uh, the linear view actually had something, had an excuse to actually get rid of the cyclical view because people were so confused. In India, for example, the cycle had become extended to a very large number. 
which of course did not make sense in the context of what we know about the past. Because of all of these reasons, because of our own confusion, actually, the church or whether you call it the church, I think the colonialists had a big role to play. All of these entities, they had a reason and an excuse kind of to get rid of the cyclical paradigm. One of the things that kind of baffled me is I read Sri Yukteswar's book called The Holy Science. For people who are not aware, he was the guru or the teacher of the very famous Indian yogi, uh, Yogananda, who was one of the first famous Indian yogis to come to the West and was very popular. He marked the end of the ascending Kali Yuga, I think it was 1700. Actually, I think it was 99, but we rounded off to 1700. He made the claim that we had come through the transition period at, I think, 1900. I think it was a year earlier, actually. But what always baffled me is when you read about the age changes, there is almost always a significant loss of life associated. And that's why I didn't get what Sri Yukteswar said, because there's apparently no massive loss of life. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was one of the main reasons uh, why I could not accept uh, Yukteswar's model. Although I adopted his cyclical model of a 12,000-year descending and a 12,000-year ascending cycle, which uh, seemed to make a lot of sense. But the specific days that he had for the beginning of uh, the Kali Yuga or the end of the Kali Yuga, or any of the other yugas, uh, any of the higher yugas that came in the past, those dates did not line up with any kind of cleansing or purification event on earth. And the whole idea of these periods of transition, which is there in every uh, esoteric doctrine about the yugas, is that the periods of transition are a time of purification. That's when not only do you get rid of the evil that uh, actually increases in course of a yuga, but that's also the time that you cleanse the planet earth and make it suitable for another round of evolution. For instance, even during the pandemic years, you might have noticed that even though it was just for a single year, but in many places of the world, we actually saw that the rivers were becoming cleaner, the nature was becoming greener, wildlife was uh, proliferating. So even in the space of a year, nature got a chance to kind of renew itself. So imagine uh, if uh, there's a kind of dormancy for a period of 100 or 150 years, which we would probably end up with an earth that is significantly pure and pristine than what we have uh, now. So one of the problems I've had, and I've been searching through cyclical time ideas from many cultures, is I've always had in my mind that when an age change happens, I should absolutely, if I'm alive when it happens, I should absolutely know that something significant has just happened. Do you agree with that idea? Absolutely. I mean, you wouldn't have to ask anybody as to what's going on. You would know very clearly that what's going on. And if you manage to survive, I mean, uh, since a lot of people uh, don't survive, but if you manage to survive, you would know very well what you have been through. There would be absolutely no confusion on that front. So age changes are big deals. I mean, they completely change the ecosphere. They change the civilizations. The old culture is wiped out practically, and the new civilizations start on a new footing. And in the model that I have proposed, you can see how, how each of these age changes were accompanied by this kind of obliteration of cultures. Uh, the most recent example being the Iron Age cultures, which all of which came up at around 600 to 700 BCE across the world. And the Bronze Age cultures, which were existent uh, prior to that time, all of them were uh, obliterated between 1100 to uh, around 880. 
all of them disappeared in Egypt or Mesopotamia or India. Everywhere you see that the Bronze Age cultures were replaced by the Iron Age cultures. And that was a time of new change, that, that time that uh, the Greeks called the Dark Ages between 1100 to around 800 BCE, the so-called Dark Ages. That was the time of collapse and a time of emergence. So in a minute here, I want to go back to the notes that we didn't get through in the first episode that we had you on. But I want to cover one more thing before we do that. Uh, one of the thing, uh, things about the work that Sri Yukteswar did, shortening back down the yuga cycles from hundreds of thousands of years, just astronomical numbers, is he tied it back to the equinoxes. And that was an important idea to me. Having said that, you have also tied your work to the equinoxes. And just so everybody listening knows where Bibu is at, and correct me if I get this wrong, he's stating that in the spring equinox, so March of 2025, next year, will be the transition. So you're kind of out on a limb here. Uh, You must have faith in your work because, let's face it, when we get through almost a year from now, we are going to have a pretty good idea if the ideas you have put forward uh, hold water or not. Well, you know, um, the transition doesn't happen abruptly. So even if Kaliyuga ends on March 21st, 2025, you wouldn't feel anything very significant on that specific date. The change is going to happen over the next uh, 15 years, which is why I said in my book that the time period from 2025 to 2040 are the end times that have been described in so many prophecies and eschatological texts. So that's the time period you should be looking at, 2025 to 2040, because in 2025 itself, you might not feel much of a change happening. Okay, we got all this out of the way. I want to pull from the notes that you created that we did not get through. So here we go. Do you think any of the modern day technologies will be carried forward to the next yuga, or will everything be destroyed during the upcoming period of transition? Well, the simple answer is no, I don't think so. And the reason being, although the present technologies are quite useful to us uh, for doing the work that we do, all of these technologies also have a very serious negative effect on the environment as well as on our consciousness. And a lot of these technologies are also used for a lot of harmful purposes. We know that a war or surveillance. These technologies are also used for managing these international transactions like money laundering or drugs or whatever. So these kind of technologies cannot be carried forward to a new yuga. So the new yuga, if you look back at the high yugas, we find they also had a lot of technologies of their own. I mean, they could build some astonishing uh, monuments uh, using techniques that we don't really know. They had skills of surgery. They developed music and art and all kinds of uh, things that we use now. So they had their own technologies, they had their own skills, but I don't think anything will exist in the next yuga, which is in the ascending cycle, which is going to either be harmful for the environment or be harmful for the human spirit. Those kind of technologies will not be allowed. And for that reason, the technologies that we have today, even though they're really useful for us now, they wouldn't be carried forward. And the example that I gave in my book is that of a blind man recovering his sight. When a blind man recovers his sight, he doesn't need his walking stick anymore. So the technologies that he used today are like the walking stick for a blind person. But as soon as we see, as soon as the doorways of knowledge and wisdom open up, the walking stick is not going to be useful any longer for us. 
So we'll have a new kind of technologies in the higher yoga. Just for the sake of argument, you mentioned 15-year period or the, you know, the slow drifting period after the spring equinox of next year, 2025. Do you feel like there's a hard date where moving forward from there, we should really be leaving the older ways behind? Well, there are two main uh, dates uh, that came out of my research, which are going to be extremely significant. And these are the two dates when our planet is going to pass through the center of the torrid resonance swarm, where there are a large number of comets, which are right now in a dormant state, but they're likely to become active very soon. And these two passages of the Earth uh, through the center of the torrid swarm in the years 2032 and 2036, they are likely to be very catastrophic for our civilization. And what I've written in my book is that the 2036 passage in particular is likely to bring down our culture. And prior to that, we are very likely to get into another global uh, war, like the world wars that we have now, because the yuga ending periods are always very violent in terms of war. When we look back at our epics, like the Ramayana or the Mahabharata, we find that every time we go into this yuga ending phase, uh, there's, there's an eruption of war and insanity all over the world. For some reason, I think maybe because of the activation of the these comets, because comets were also said to be responsible for triggering warfare. It could be because of that, or it could be because of the radiation from the black hole, which is another important uh, element in my research. But whatever be the case, there seems to be a change in the balance of energy on our planet, and that kind of drives men into a sort of frenzy. They cannot be persuaded by reason or by logic anymore. And that is the kind of time we seem to be heading into right now as we see the eruption of warfare all over the world. And I think this is going to pick up more speed as we cross 2025 and get into the period of transition. So by 2030, we might actually see a big war happening uh, all over the world. And that will be followed by the passage of the Earth through the center of the torrid swarm in 2032 and 2036. So those are kind of the events which we have to look out for. Babu, have you been tracking any of the comets that are on radar right now? Uh, on radar as in? And, you know, that we're aware of. Like if you were to go to astronomical news, there are a few comets that are generally around most of the time. Uh, there was one recently in the news that the news was calling the Devil Comet, which actually has had a name since I forget, 1800s at least. Are you familiar with any of these more modern comets? Uh, no, I haven't heard of that one. I generally keep a track of comments uh, when they, uh, you know, when uh, it becomes uh, comes into mainstream news, but I haven't uh, kept track of the more uh, lesser known ones. Yeah, it, it was a bit of a news extravaganza. It felt a little bit like a put up to me. Uh, it was a comet that was named, I believe it, it carried two men's name, as is typically the case if two people discover it. If I remember correctly, it was the 1800s, so it's periodic, a little bit longer or shorter than like Halley's would have been. But they wanted to call it the Devil Comet in the news, but they made an extraordinary claim that it would be near the sun, near the full solar eclipse. And for a very short period of time, the news claimed that when the sun was blacked out during the eclipse, that the comet would be visible near the sun. But I'll move on from there because I don't, I don't know if that's anything more than just media nonsense. Actually, I didn't read about it in the uh, in the papers. So, I mean, is, is there any date associated with this event? Has anybody seen it or imaged it? I don't know. 
yeah, I, I think there were some claims, but what was weird about it is it went into the news for about a week and then I didn't see a lot about it. And I did do a short lookup on it, but I don't know enough about it right now. Uh, typically, I wait till I feel like there's something to it to take the time to research it. But anyhow, let's, let's keep moving here. We should probably just quickly define for people who are listening for the first time, uh, the idea of the Yuga cycle is if you imagine a circle, at the top of the circle, there's a golden age. On the left half is the ascending. When you hit dead center, the right half is the descending. You go all the way down to six o'clock through the cycles of each Yuga. And at the bottom, it's the same thing. On the right half is a descending dark age. You hit dead center. Then you're on the ascending dark age called the Iron Age, called the Kali Yuga. So that just sets up so people can think in their mind uh, this next question uh, from your notes, but we've already kind of addressed it, but I, I don't want to miss any of these. In the ascending Yuga cycle, do you think there will be cataclysmic events at the end of each and every Yuga? And the reason this question seems important is because I think some people think once you get by the descending cycle, where we supposedly are now on the ascending cycle, they feel like there won't be any more cataclysmic events. Yeah, I mean, that's a valid question, actually, because, uh, okay, first of all, let me clarify that right now we are a part of the descending cycle, even though we are in the so-called ascending Kali Yogas. So this can sometimes be a bit confusing for people because we are calling it the ascending Kali Yuga, but still it's a part of the descending cycle. And the reason being that we're still in the Kali Yuga, Kali Yuga has two parts. One is a descending part, the other is an ascending part. In the descending part, there's a decline both in our material conditions of life as well as our consciousness. Whereas in the ascending part, there's an improvement in the material conditions of life, but the decline in consciousness continues till the end of the Kali Yuga. And since it is consciousness or virtue or dharma, whatever you call it, which decides this Yuga cycle, we are still a part of the descending cycle. Now, this descending cycle is after the end of this descending cycle, we go into the ascending cycle. And in the ascending cycle, there really doesn't seem to be too much of a reason for cataclysm, uh, cataclysmic obliteration of civilization because virtue and uh, uh, is going to increase on a daily basis almost till we reach the next golden age. So there doesn't seem to be any reason to kind of abruptly stop this uh, blossoming of uh, goodness and uh, virtue all over the world. But at the same time, uh, my point is that uh, the reasons why we have these periods of transition is not only because to remove the evil that uh, kind of uh, increase in course of yoga, but also to restore the planet and to make it more pristine for the next round. So even in the ascending cycle, there is a possibility that uh, our planet might need to be cleansed on a periodic basis. So the nature of the transitions may not really be catastrophic, but we might enter into some kind of a dormant period from time to time in order to allow the nature to heal and renew itself and then begin the next phase. So I think it will be much more muted than we had in the last 12,000 years of the descending cycle, where we find that every time there was a period of transition, the older civilizations were almost completely wiped out. All right. The next question is one, I think I got a chapter or two beyond this in your book, if I'm not mistaken, but it is the idea about the Yuga cycles not matching up with procession. Just for the record, I have a very different view of procession than most people do because I reject the mainstream claims. But nonetheless, 
uh, let's get into this. Why is there a discrepancy between the complete Yuga cycle of 24,000 years and the Earth's precession cycle of 25,800 years? And you did work to try to resolve this discrepancy. Yeah, I think I spoke about it last time as well. And uh, in Yukteswar's model, we had a 12,000-year descending cycle and a 12,000-year ascending cycle, which adds up to a 24,000-year complete Yuga cycle. But the Earth's precession cycle is 25,800 years. And uh, it's very likely that the Yuga cycle and the precession cycle are one and the same uh, because the value of the great year, which was specified by Cicero, who was one of the Roman uh, philosophers was 25,920 years, which is very close to the duration of precession. But the question is, why do we have this mismatch uh, between uh, the Yuga cycle and the precession cycle as proposed by Yukteswar? And the reason for that is that, which I've uh, found out through my research is, there are two extended periods of transition at the opposite ends of the Yuga cycle. So after the golden age ends, there's a transition of around 1,200 years. And similarly, after the Kali Yuga ends, there's going to be a long period of transition of 1,200 years before the ascending cycle starts. So the ascending and the descending cycles are separated by long periods of transition of 1,200 years each. The Greeks call them cataclysmus and ekpyrosis. Cataclysmus is the period of transition that took place after the end of the Golden Age. And cataclysmus is a term that means deluge or the great winter. And uh, ekpyrosis is the period of transition that is going to happen after the end of the Kali Yuga. And ekpyrosis is a term that means uh, conflagration or burning, which means this time the world is going to be cleansed by fire. So once you take into account these two extended periods of transition, then the duration of the Yuga cycle becomes 25,800 years, which is exactly equal to the precession cycle of the Earth. So it was so it's basically a single cycle, the precession cycle, which the ancients were tracking all over the world. And they gave it different names. Somebody called it Yuga Cycle, somebody called it a great year, somebody called it the four worlds, and so on. All right, we're gonna get back into comets here. In your book, you wrote about a sequence of 26 comets uh, that are described in ancient Sanskrit. And the text uh, is that it struck Earth, or a comet, I guess, struck Earth 1,200 years ago in the mainstream Younger Dryas period. Let's get into that for a minute. Yeah, see, uh, the Younger Dryas period is that period of 1,200 years that I was talking about that the Greeks call cataclysmus or deluge. So it it occurred between 10,900 BC till around 9,700 BC. So that was the time that the Earth went through a sudden period of very intense cooling. And the Ice Age had almost returned back to its peak. And uh, for a long time, uh, geologists didn't really know what happened. uh, What what was it that caused this sudden period of cooling when global temperatures had plummeted by around 15 degrees Celsius in many places. And this was also the time when all the Ice Age megafauna was almost destroyed in an instant. And people didn't know what caused all of these Ice Age mammals to be suddenly killed off. And then uh, a group of uh, geologists, uh, they found that uh, we we had been impacted by a very large disintegrating comet at around 10,900 BC. And it was this comet that was responsible for the end of the Pleistocene megafauna and for the onset of the Younger Dry schooling. Now, there's a very 
there's a Sanskrit text called Adbhuta Sagara, and there's a particular professor in India called R.N. Iyengar. He has found out this, that this particular Sanskrit text describes a series of 26 comets that struck the earth during a period that is known as the era of the flood. And the second comet in this list is supposed to have caused the flood. And the total duration over which these comets struck the earth can be computed as 1200 years, which is exactly equal to the younger Dryas period, which means this particular comet swarm had struck the earth during the younger Dryas period. And the first comet in the swarm is the one that triggered the younger Dryas cooling. And the second comet uh, had caused the flood, which is described in so many ancient traditions. And in case you're wondering, how do we know that the flood actually occurred? Isn't it just a mythological tale? Or do we have any evidence for the flood in terms of uh, something in our geology? And the answer is yes, we do have, because there's a black mat which was deposited over this 1200 year period. And what a lot of geologists have found is that the reason why the color of this mat is black is because during the younger dry period, the water tables were kind of spilling over. There was a lot of rain and the water tables were spilling over entire areas of the earth were very wet and marshy throughout the younger dry period, which of course doesn't make sense because during the younger dry period, the sea level was still rising very slowly. Glaciers were advancing and therefore the water table should have gone down and not up. So, which means a lot of extra water, a lot of water was injected into our uh, ecosphere during the younger dry period. The only agent that could have done that is a comet because it is a known fact that comets brought water to the earth. Comets uh, not only contain, uh, uh, because when comets uh, pass through the atmosphere, it actually gives out a lot of water vapor. One of the main gases that comes out of a comet is water vapor. And comet also gives off a lot of dust. So what probably happened was that the water vapor given off by the comets condensed around the dust and created a lot of rainfall because of which a lot of extra water was injected into our ecosphere. And uh, that was the reason for the flood. So when you say black mat, what you're actually referring to, and correct me if this is incorrect, a lot of geologists, they dig down all over the world and they find a line in the geological record. Uh, it's like a black line that's all over the place. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. The black mat has been found uh, across all the continents. And the duration of this black mat is same as the duration of the younger Dryas period, which is from uh, 10,900 BC uh, uh, to 9,700 BC. So it's it's a 1200 year period and the black mat spans that entire period. And in this black mat, they found evidence of a lot of biomass burning. And uh, they also found evidence of comet and meteor impacts because they found very high levels of iridium. And iridium is a very good indicator of comet impacts. So throughout this period, there were comet impacts happening. There were uh, there was a lot of biomass burning. And in addition to that, there was also a lot of water, a lot of flooding going on all over the world. And we know that a comet had struck at the boundary of the Younger Dryas. And now we have this Sanskrit text, which tells us that that comet actually struck us throughout this uh, Younger Dryas period. There were 26 comets which came in one after the other after a gap of around, I mean, the gap is not very consistent. Sometimes it it's uh, the gap. There's a gap of around hundred years, but sometimes they might come in a cluster of maybe five or ten years. So throughout this period, we were, we were actually impacted by this twenty-six uh, sequence of twenty-six comments. And after uh, after that, uh, 
we have this after that the uh, ice age ended and then we have the beginning of the warm interglacial period that we live in now and that is called holocene so the record of these 26 comets does that only exist in sanskrit and is it a text that people could get their hands on if they wanted to look into it yeah, yeah, it's uh, it was there in sans- Sanskrit, and it has been translated by Professor Iyengar into English, and I referenced uh, his article on this, uh, so it's there in my book. You can look up the reference, and it, uh, the and the article is free uh, free to read, so you can just follow the link and read that article. Is this the only reference that you have found it was in Sanskrit that there was a uh, twenty six comets that uh, affected us in this way? Yeah, this is the only reference that I have about this particular uh, uh, time period, that uh, this younger dress time period, this is the only reference that I could find. Do you have any idea how old, or, or, or is there an idea of how old those texts are? And do you know the name of the text? Yeah, the name of the text is called, uh, is Adbhuta Sagara, which basically means Ocean of Wonders. And uh, this information has been uh, collated from ancient sages like Parasara and Garvi, but nobody really knows how old this information is in terms of people who wrote the text. The text that we have with us right now was uh, written down because a lot of this Vedic information was oral in nature and the text that we have with us us was written down in the 12th century AD. But uh, the text itself says that this knowledge has been handed down to us by the ancient sages like Parasara and Garvi. And those sages lived thousands of years ago. We don't know exactly when they lived. And even those sages might have got that information from their predecessors. So we can't make out the how old this information is by reading the uh, text itself unless we follow uh, the actual geological events which happened. All right. Also associated with the Yuga cycles is the idea of the expanding and contracting of human consciousness, physical size, uh, the length of lifespans. And this seems to be universal. Even in the Western Bible, there are ideas that people like, um, you know, that some people may have had nearly a thousand year lifespan. Uh, There are other cultures that do this. But have you been able to find out or do you have an idea of what's driving the Yuga cycle, which would cause that idea? where human consciousness would get expansive or contract or that people's physical. I mean, I've read accounts in the Yuga cycle that people at the golden age are much, much larger with a much larger lifespan. Yeah, that's true. And that is actually now been validated by uh, data, Uh, especially in terms of physical size. We now know that we have declined in size since the last 12,000 years. And this has been found all over the world. Uh, And most of the data comes to us from the Eastern Mediterranean region and from Northern Europe. And what this shows is on an average, we have declined in size by at least a foot or more. Now, remember, we are talking about mainstream science here. And there's a tendency amongst the uh, researchers to actually get rid of to remove what they feel are anomalous uh, skulls. So if they find something which is like, uh, you know, much bigger than the average, they'll probably think this is anomalous and we're not going to consider it. So I'm talking about mainstream data and mainstream data itself shows that we have shrunk in size by around a foot or so over the last 12,000 years. And the same, same is true for cranial volume, which is an indicator of our intelligence, both our 
analytical as well as our emotional intelligence and cranial volumes have also shrunk uh, tremendously. I mean, in case of males, they have looked at around 9,000 cranial specimens over the last uh, 10,000 odd years. That's a big number, 9,000 cranial specimens. And they found that in case of males, the cranial volume have shrunk by around 10%. And in case of women, it has shrunk by, shrunk by around 17%. That's even more. So it's a, it's a very real fact that we have shrunk in size as well. And our brain volumes have also declined is exactly what the Asians have told us, that we become smaller and we become less wise, uh, which is why there's also an increase in all of the immorality and the violence and the greed and selfishness in course of the descending cycle. It's directly linked to the decline in our cranial volume. Is there any indication as to why that would happen? Yeah, and this is something that I tried to uh, figure out as to what could be driving this uh, change. Now, the first thing is that according to a specific professor, a couple, a few professors, in fact, there's been a genetic degradation. And they believe that it's because of this genetic degradation over the last few thousand years that we are declining in size and our, our brain volumes are also shrinking. And what they're saying is that our genes are constantly mutating and we are acquiring a lot of harmful mutations. And then we pass on these harmful mutations to the next generation and then they add their own harmful mutations to that. And this is resulting in a, a kind of accumulation of harmful genetic mutations, which is causing this degradation, and which is fine. And that makes sense to me. But the question is, what is it that causing the uh, harmful genetic mutations? Why aren't we getting any beneficial genetic mutations? Uh, so in order to look into that, I, I looked at many different uh, possibilities. And then I finally, and I spoke about this last time, and I believe that it is the Aegean cycle of the Milky Way's uh, black hole, which is driving this uh, fluctuation in course of a yoga cycle. Now, if I go into that, that's going to be another long discussion. But I just want to end it by saying that it is actually the radiation from the central nucleus of our galaxy over a 25,800 year cycle, which is causing this uh, increase in uh, increase and decrease in our physical size and cranial volume, as well as lifespan. Yeah, I think in Sri Yukteswar's work, that's where he comes up with the idea of a binary star. But like in the Western tradition, biblically speaking, if I'm not mistaken, I always get the numbers wrong, but I think Methuselah is supposed to be the oldest individual in the Bible. He's not quite a thousand. He's like 969 or something like that. And while they don't talk about him being a giant, there are giants in the Bible. In the Indian tradition, like in the part of the world where you live, is it commonly accepted that when you get up into the golden ages, that people have more virtue, more consciousness, much longer lifespans, and that they are physically much bigger? Yeah, that's a common understanding. And in the Indian text, uh, your average lifespan is 400 years in the golden age, uh, 300 years in the silver, 200 in the bronze, and 100 in the iron age, which is the Kali Yoga. And you can see that in the present day, our lifespan are close to around uh, 100 years. In fact, and this is something that I wrote about in the book, the Egyptians had a, the Egyptians during the Bronze Age, they used to believe that, when I say Bronze Age, I basically mean the descending Kali Yoga here. Egyptians used to believe that the ideal lifespan is 110 years. And when you look at some of the old kingdom, uh, it's some texts, you find that some of the Egyptian pharaohs and their ministers used to live close to around 100 years. But then 
you don't have uh, too much data uh, for the later periods. And then towards the end of the Egyptian uh, civilization, uh, when, when they were taken over by the Romans during the Ptolemaic period, during that time, we find that the Egyptian average age was around 50, 54 years. And during the same time, the average age of Romans was around uh, 46, 40, uh, 45, 46 years. And you get that information from the tombstones because uh, earlier the tombstones didn't carry age of the person who had died. But later on during the Roman period, they used to specify the age of the person who had died. From that, we get that by the end of the descending Kali Yuga, the average age had actually fallen to around 50 odd years. And then there has been a gradual increase. So now the average age is around 80 years and we are reaching close to the ideal of 100 years. We haven't quite reached there and that could be probably because of all the harmful toxic food that we eat and the harmful air that we breathe. Had it not been for that, we would have probably reached 100 years by now. And in Japan, there's a place called Okinawa where the average age of the citizens is 100 years. And uh, it has been found that all of them lead a very traditional way of life. They don't consume the kind of food and entertainment like the rest of us. Yeah, I lived there for, I lived in Okinawa for an extended period of time. Uh, it's not just their diet. They also attribute their culture as being familial. You know, the family is close together and they, they claim that contributes. But I, I had first firsthand, I met people that were so old, they couldn't even remember how old they were. Here's an interesting thing. People even today can go online and look up newspaper articles from the early 1900s in the southwest of this country, and it is clear that many giant skeletons had been found, um, but it's like been hidden. All that information has been scrubbed. None of these skeletons that I'm aware of are on display. It seems like the, uh, uh, what's Jason, Jason, what's the name of the, the Smithsonian? It seems like the Smithsonian was always involved to come whisk away the evidence. But what's funny about that is that if the Yuga cycles are real, which I accept they are, and if we do, in fact, get much bigger, um, that would be direct evidence that proves that linear time is nonsense. And I'm just pointing that out. Do you want to make any comment on that? Yeah, I mean, the giants have been mentioned in uh, so many ancient cultures and the Greek uh, historians, a lot of them are. Uh, for instance, they actually wrote about the discovery of giant skeletons. I mean, this is not very commonly known, but I had written an article on the giants and there had uh, source information from the writings of the very well-known Greek historians like Pliny or many of the others. I can't remember the names offhand now. And they had reported about the discovery of giant human skeletons, some of which were around 15 uh, to 20 feet uh, tall. And the Greeks always mentioned that their demigods, uh, like Hercules and others, they were at least around uh, 15 feet tall. So yeah, there, there was this belief in giants all over the world. In India, we call them Rakshash. Uh, the giants, we call them Rakshash. And some of them were uh, actually antagonistic towards humans. And uh, humans and these giants frequently got into fights. That's, that's what we read about in our uh, ancient uh, mythological texts. So yeah, but uh, the other thing that we need to remember is uh, there were the giants and there were the humans and the giants were always very tall and uh, their average height uh, we can't we shouldn't confuse the two i mean humans were also tall but humans and they have declined in height since the golden age till now and the giants were also very tall and they also declined in height since the golden age and now and uh, 
we should not confuse the giant skeletons with humans because they were a, a kind of a different uh, species. Well, even in the old newspaper articles that I referenced, some of them that I've seen draw the picture that the local Indians were trying to kill them, that there was a problem. And actually, I think I read accounts that they had red hair, at least some of them. But I mean, this is all over the world, these ideas. It's even in the Bible, even the story of David and Goliath. I mean, what are we talking about here? But if you go to the Middle East, I think everybody has seen the images carved on stone where there's an individual with a beard holding a lion like it's a house cat. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that. That's right. Uh, It's generally uh, attributed to Gilgamesh, but that's just uh, guesswork. But in so many texts, you find that uh, even in uh, during the time, even around 2000 years back, there were tall people, uh, uh, there were people as tall as 10 feet or 11 feet high. And that has been mentioned in so many historical uh, accounts of that period uh, by, uh, by the Greek writers, by the Jewish writers. They mentioned that uh, we have a person uh, who's like 10 feet tall or 11 feet tall and they call him a giant. So, yeah, so we had uh, we had these tall genes uh, for a very long time. and. Uh, to me, they seem to be a kind of a separate race, and they've frequently got into con- conflicts with humans. Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of feel that way, and that's why I asked the question, because human beings, in fact, are supposed to get bigger, but there's an idea that there was another race, which are even larger yet. You know what's interesting? I don't know. Bibu, did, have you ever seen the old, I think it's 1950s movie with Stuart Granger called King Solomon's Minds? Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that movie, but I remember very little of it now. At the very end of it, they end up with an African tribe, and some of these guys look like they're over seven feet tall. They have very unique haircuts. They're very slender, but clearly they are of a race that are much, much taller than the average human being in the world now. Anyone interested could go look at the movie King Solomon's Mind. If I had to guess, I'd say maybe 1954. I think it's Stuart Granger. You know anything about that, Jason? I don't actually know. Yeah, it's a good movie to catch just because of it being filmed on location and the interaction with the real tribal cultures of Africa. But we're at about 45 minutes here, Bibu. Uh, Are there things that you feel are important you'd like to get into hour one before we take a break uh, to come back for hour two? Uh, well, no, it's. Uh, I think we're doing fine. And uh, regarding the giants, even in the late, I think, 19th century, uh, there was a place called Patagonia in South America, and this is very uh, well documented. Uh, when the when the some of the Spanish explorers landed there, they found giants who were around uh, nine to ten feet tall, and they said that this whole race is around uh, the, that high at that tall. And this is pretty well documented, and anybody can go and uh, look up the Patagonian giants. All right. Well, for the last thing that I uh, we want to get into hour one, can you just quickly, I know you did, you defined this before, but for this episode, in case people are just getting here for the first time, you've talked about the torrid meteor shower or the torrid storm. Can you just define what that is? Because when we come back, we'll probably talk a little more about comets and things that have to do with that. Yeah. Uh, you see, uh, our planet passes through a number of uh, meteor streams as it orbits the sun. And each of these meteor streams are nothing but a, a river of debris or a river of rubble left behind by a comet with the Earth crossing orbit. So let's say a comet passes, uh, comes out, uh, comes in from the outer solar system. It uh, re- goes around the sun and it again goes back out. Along its path, 
the comet basically starts fragmenting and it leaves behind uh, what we call our meteors or meteoroids. Uh, so those are the meteor streams that we pass through in course of our orbit, uh, orbit around the sun. Now, the largest meteor stream in the solar system is the torrid meteor stream. It's really, really big and really wide. And we pass through the torrid meteor stream uh, twice because remember, it's a comet that has created this stream. So it intersects the Earth's orbit at two points. We pass through this stream once in summer uh, between uh, May, uh, May and June. Um, that's that that part of the stream is called the beta torrids, and then again we pass through a very wide part of the stream from September to December. That stream is called the northern torrids. Now, the torrid meteor stream is so big and so uh, and it contains so many large uh, meteoroids. Normally, most of the other meteor stream they contains very small meteoroids, not bigger than a fist. But the torrid meteor stream actually contains some very large meteoroids, and they have been known to cause a number of impact events on the Earth. So uh, scientists were really puzzled as to what could have caused this uh, large meteor stream uh, in the first place. Because right now, there's only a very small comet which circulates in the torrid meteor stream, and it's called Comet Enki. Enki is uh, very small. It's, it's got a diameter of around five kilometers. Its nucleus is around five kilometers wide, and it's very faint. It's not the kind of comet that could have created this giant stream. So a uh, number of astronomers, uh, mainly Klube uh, and Napier, who were British astronomers, in the late 90s, they said that they have studied this stream very carefully, and they said that they believe that a very large comet uh, around 100 kilometers to 150 kilometers in diameter came into the inner solar system around at least around 30,000 years ago. And then it started breaking up in stages. And it is this particular comet which created this entire torrid meteor stream. Now, this particular comet hasn't totally broken up yet. The parent comet is still there within the stream, but it's in a dormant state, which is why we can't see it start and it's also surrounded by many large fragments which broke up from this parent comet and this parent comet and these larger fragments derived from this uh, comet are, are have formed a swarm they're moving in a swarm close very closely packed and this swarm is called the torrid resonant swarm and these scientists believe that our earth passes through the center of this swarm every 2500 to 3000 years and that's when we get a series of bombardments from this swarm, which, uh, is, which, which is very catastrophic for us. And I figured that the torrid resonance swarm is responsible for the yuga ending catastrophes that we experienced in course of the, uh, that we experienced in course of the descending cycle. So it's, it's a, the torrid resonance swarm is a very important part of my uh, thesis in this book. I'm not the first one to write it, uh, because Graham Hancock had also written about the torrid resonance swarm in one of his books uh, called The Magicians of the Gods. And that's when I, when I first came to know about this particular swarm and uh, of its importance. But I do, uh, I researched a bit more on it until I came to realize that the passage of the earth through the torrid resonance swarm, which is responsible for this uh, routine uh, destruction of civilization at the end of a yuga. And we are passing through the center of the swarm in the years 2032 and 2036. So for everyone listening, I think most people who've been here very long know that I have very different ideas than a lot of the mainstream ideas about space. But what Bibu was just talking about 
you could almost think of it from the mainstream idea is if our planet drifts through the tail of a comet, it's almost like that idea. But here's the thing. These things are predictable. Almost every year, if you follow astronomical news, you can hear, oh, there's going to be a Perseid meteor shower. And they are predictable when they're going to happen. They're not always real accurate, but I have paid attention long enough that sometimes they'll tell you, oh, there's going to, the possibility of seeing this many meteors in the meteor shower, this many meteors in an hour, they'll say maybe a hundred. I have seen times when the prediction was very, very close. The other thing that you should keep in mind is that comets have been shown to be periodic. My point being is when we think about what meteor storms might be or comet showers, I don't think you can let go and without knowing firmly in your mind that these things are predictable, they're periodic, and to some degree, they can even get the number that you might see in a particular hour down. But Bibu, we're at the top of the first hour. We're going to take a short break. Can you please tell people where they can find your work and where they can get a hold of your book? Yeah, to find my book, you just need to type Yoga Shift uh, in Amazon and you'll get it. And my website is called Ancient Enquiries, but the uh, web address is my name. It's www.bibhudvmisra.com. All right. We will get the links into comments as we always do. Jason, would you like to get anything in before I wrap it? We need to mention the Q&A show coming up with Fortune. All right. So Fortune de St. Germain contacted me and we are going to do another Q&A episode with Fortune. The questions that people can submit are going to be taken from membership only. So in hour two, in the very beginning of the episode, we're going to provide the email address for you to use to submit your questions. All the questions will relate to current events happening now, period. That's it. You want to add anything, Jason? So this is building off of the Q&As that we've done before, but we want to focus it just on things going on now. We had a lot of, oh, what would you say, all over the place questions last time, and this is going to make it easier by having a focused subject matter. Yeah, this is going to be very focused and it pertains to the world now. And to me, that's a helpful constraint. So to reassess, all members of Crow 777 Radio will be able to submit questions to a specific email address. Those questions will have to be related to the world currently, current events now. There it is. So if you're a member, you're all set. If you want to submit questions, you need to join us. We're going to come back for hour two. There are a slew more of interesting ideas to get through. When we talk about these things, in my mind, it is so important to get as many cultural ideas as you can, to get the mainstream ideas, to get the not so mainstream ideas. To me, the more information that you have at your disposal, the better the ideas are that you can come up with. And one thing I will say about Bibu's book is that he took a lot of effort to take all the cultural ideas from all over the world and put it in one place. And anyone who wanted to research into this, that saves a hell of a lot of work. 
I mean, a hell of a lot of work, but that is hour one of episode 567. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. They get access to all the forums. They can create forums, all the comment sections, and they can download the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon, which covers all my telescopic work over roughly half a decade. With that, we're going to prep up for hour two, and I hope to see you logged in as a member for hour two. I'd like to wish everybody out there a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. We'll be back shortly. Cheers. Belief is the enemy of knowing.